Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. I'm Dan Ambender, and I could not be more ecstatic about introducing the Cardio Nerds Atrial Fibrillation Series, which is a comprehensive multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from a variety of programs and led by co-chairs Dr. Kelly Arps, Cardiology Fellow at Duke University, and Dr. Colin Blumenthal, Cardiology Fellow at University of Pennsylvania. The series kicks off with this superlative episode featuring epidemiology, health equity, and the double paradox of atrial fibrillation with electrophysiologist Dr. Larry Jackson from Duke University. Stay with us. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This series is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb and the Pfizer Alliance. Of course, all CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. We have collaborated with VCU to provide free CME for the episode. See the episode page for the link to claim CME and relevant disclosures. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. And with that, let's get nerdy. Hi, Cardio Nerds. We're excited to welcome you as we embark on a fluttering adventure. Today, we begin an electric series, the Cardio Nerds Atrial Fibrillation Series. Over the course of this series, we'll explore multiple facets of atrial fibrillation, including epidemiology and health inequities, the diagnosis and detection of atrial fibrillation, assessment of stroke and bleeding risk, anticoagulation options, transcatheter and surgical left atrial appendage occlusion strategies, and rhythm control strategies, joined by leading experts in the field. My name is Kelly Arps. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow and soon-to-be electrophysiology fellow at Duke University. And I have the pleasure of co-chairing this series together with Colin Blumenthal. Colin is a first-year cardiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also House Faculty Leader for House Jones in the Cardio Nerds Academy. Kelly, I am super excited to be co-chairing this series with you. I can't believe we have had 194 flutter moments on Cardio Nerds so far, and this is the first one that is actually about flutter. AFib is the number one consult for the General Cardiology Service here at Penn, and a topic that is relevant from everyone from cardiology fellows to surgical interns, primary care physicians, and beyond, as everyone will encounter AFib and flutter frequently. For this first episode, we'll be tackling the epidemiology of AFib, as well as the health inequities surrounding it. Introducing our expert and leading today's episode is our cardio nerds colleague, Dr. Dinu Belenescu. Dinu is a third-year internal medicine resident and upcoming chief resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. He also serves as house faculty for House Jones, aka the best house, in the Cardio Nerds Academy. Hi, Kelly and Colin. Thank you so much for the privilege of joining you on this shocking series. Just to avoid becoming regularly regular, I'll keep our rhythm going by introducing our guest expert. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Larry Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a cardiac electrophysiologist and assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at Duke University Medical Center, where he serves as a vice chief of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Dr. Jackson is also an expert researcher focusing on analyzing racial and ethnic disparities and the impact of social determinants of health on arrhythmia care. 
Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us and for generously sharing your wisdom on the first episode of the CardioNerds Atrial Fibrillation Series. Good evening to you all. Thank you for the invitation. I'm certainly honored to be here. I want to thank the co-chairs, Dr. Colin Blumenthal and Dr. Kelly Arts, as well as our lead, Dr. Dinu Belenasco. I'm so excited, so thrilled to talk about an area of active research for me, but something that's near and dear to my heart. And I think something that has the potential to change how we think about atrial fibrillation and ultimately how we manage our patients with atrial fibrillation. Dr. Jackson, let's start today's discussion by defining how massive this issue actually is. AFib is the most frequent cardiac arrhythmia with an estimated 50 to 60 million people worldwide suffering from the condition. As our population grows, it's also getting older, which is one factor that is driving a large increase in the incidence and prevalence of the disease. Dr. Jackson, what other factors are contributing to this epidemic and where do we expect to be over the next 20 to 30 years? You know, it's a great question, and I would state that the data that you mentioned there, the estimations of 50 to 60 million, that is older data from Samit Chug and colleagues from probably the early 2010s. So I look at that as a conservative estimate. So it's really unclear the current prevalence of atrial fibrillation that we have, not only in the United States, as well as globally. So we could expect that number, at least by 2050, to even double, if not triple, when we're speaking specifically about the prevalence of atrial fibrillation. I think when we think about factors that are driving this increase, we have some classic factors that we all know about, that being heart failure, that being coronary artery disease, that being hypertension, that being diabetes mellitus, that being tobacco use, and that being obesity. But I think we should also key in on some other subclinical as well as novel markers that are particularly key in driving atrial fibrillation. Some of the subclinical factors that come to mind include left atrial enlargement, which in my mind is sort of synonymous or a signal for left atrial cardiomyopathy or a left atrial sort of disease process that may predispose someone to atrial fibrillation. There's also left ventricular hypertrophy we think about. We should also think about sort of novel markers such as inflammatory biochemical markers such as BMP, CRP, obstructive sleep apnea, and metabolic syndrome. And so I think as we continue, unfortunately, on this path where atrial fibrillation is not only epidemic currently, but may reach pandemic portions, we have to think really about these factors that we see that continue to drive this. And I like to hone in on metabolic syndrome because it encompasses not only obesity, but other risk factors such as hypertension, insulin resistance, and maybe even hyperlipidemia. The one other point I would make is that when we think about racial and ethnic differences potentially and risk factors, and what's driving or associated with atrial fibrillation, we have to know that many of these risk factors that I have detailed have been studied predominantly in white populations. So we really need to understand the potential drivers and potential mechanisms of atrial fibrillation and other underrepresented racial and ethnic groups, such as Blacks, such as Hispanics, such as Native Americans, such as Alaskan Natives, such as Pacific Islanders. There's so much more work that needs to be done in this field over the next several decades to understand additional risk factors and to get a better handle on the epidemiology of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Jackson, this sounds like a huge issue that will only become larger. And thank you so much for highlighting how important knowing about atrial fibrillation, not only in the white populations that are mostly studied, but also across race and ethnicity. It's 
clear that this issue will become larger and we have to become more sensitive towards not just the traditional risk factors that we see day to day, but actually many health equity issues that can affect AFib epidemiology. The incidence in AFib, as you mentioned, varies across race and ethnicity, and there seems to be some conflicting information in the literature on this topic. For example, a BMJ heart study of about 2.2 million people in the UK and a MESA study cohort have shown higher incidence of AFib in the non-Hispanic white population compared to non-Hispanic black or Hispanic individuals. In contrast, a follow-up study with the MESA cohort showed that the prevalence was similar when the diagnosis was made using Holter monitor data. Dr. Jackson, how do you interpret these findings? Yeah, Dina, it's a great question. I think when we look at the majority, overwhelmingly, of the epidemiology studies regarding incidence and prevalence of atrial fibrillation as a function of race and ethnicity, we see time and time again that African-Americans have a significantly lower burden in terms of incidence and prevalence. And most of those studies, once again, are detecting AFib from various clinical endpoints. Now, this sub-study from MESA, which is from Susan Heckford and colleagues, essentially their conclusion was that, you know, an unbiased AF detection strategy via ambulatory monitoring really revealed little difference in terms of the proportion with AF by race and ethnicity. So they're seeming to suggest that this differential detection as a function of race in terms of clinical recognition of AFib is present. I think that's very interesting because there is older data, which I think is equally as powerful, from a sub-study of the ASSERT trial. This is published in the Journal of Cardiovascular Electrophysiology in 2013. And what they did was they enrolled over 2,500 patients of differing ethnicities, all with some sort of implantable device, whether it be a pacemaker or implantable cardioverter defibrillator. And the representation was broad, 23 countries. And what was their goal? So they wanted to detect incident AFib from both asymptomatic and symptomatic individuals. So simply, once again, trying to remove this idea of ascertainment bias, which we will speak to later. So if we look at this sub-study of ASSERT, and if we think about nuance at atrial fibrillation, and they had to define that as greater than six minutes or six hours, in that study, Black Africans with implantable devices had significantly less incident AFib than European populations. So I think even amongst a strategy where we are attempting to remove ascertainment bias by either ambulatory monitoring or implantable cardiovascular devices, we have conflicting data. So this tells me that we need more studies to really analyze this very important question as to clinical detection versus monitoring with devices and what really is the true incidence of prevalence. How are we defining episodes? How are we defining what type of AFib timeframe that we are capturing or monitoring? So all these things are important and need to be teased out with further investigation. Dr. Jackson, this is just such an excellent point here, and it really shows how complex inequality can be in our health system. You know, before I was reading this study and listening to you talk about this topic here, the way we diagnose AFib wasn't even really something that was on my radar when it comes to a possible bias that I could have that I didn't even know about. And this is really, I think, an important point that you can take into the clinic, that you can take into the hospital and think, am I doing everything I should be doing? Is is there, you know, things that I don't even recognize in the way that I am looking for AFib that could affect where I am finding it and create inequality within the healthcare system? And what's really interesting about this is potentially how risk factors tie into these differences. 
when you briefly earlier in the podcast went through some of the risk factors that go into the growing prevalence of AFib in the world right now, the vast majority of those risk factors are more prevalent in the non-Hispanic black population than in the non-Hispanic white population. But a like, quote unquote, lower incidence of AFib is detected in a lot of these these studies. So how do you explain this paradox where non-Hispanic black populations have more risk factors for AFib, but we don't seem to be detecting AFib at the same rate? Colin, to your first point, we really have to have a high index of sufficient and realize that everybody is not equal in terms of symptom presentation. So we have clear data that racial and ethnic groups may have more symptoms than white populations. We have, you know, gender differences with respect to symptoms and how people present with atrial fibrillation. So we have to have a real high clinical suspicion that may affect how we begin our monitoring or think about monitoring patients with presumed or suspected atrial fibrillation. Now, to your second point, this idea of this paradox, we call this the AFib paradox, where Blacks, for example, with AFib cluster a higher number of risk factors, some of those classic risk factors we talked about compared to white populations, but have a lower incidence and prevalence compared to other populations. It's so interesting, and there's several reasons that I would like to articulate as to why we think that may be going on. But the one thing I want to convey to your audience is that it's not only a single paradox, it's a double paradox. And so what do I mean by that? Blacks, while clustering a higher number of risk factors, overwhelmingly in most studies have a lower incidence and prevalence of atrial fibrillation. But when we look at outcomes, whether it be stroke, whether it be heart failure, whether it be death, Blacks and other underrepresented racial and ethnic groups compared to whites tend to have poorer outcomes. So this idea of the atrial fibrillation paradox is in fact a double paradox. So what are some of the reasons that we think this is going on? We discussed something about ascertainment bias, capturing these episodes. Maybe it's that racial and ethnic groups with atrial fibrillation have access issues that prevent them from presenting to medical attention for a rhythm assessment, okay? So this idea of not being able to capture the rhythm from a myriad of reasons comes up as one of the reasons to explain the atrial fibrillation paradox. Another thing that comes to mind is a survival bias. We know that non-Hispanic whites have a longer life expectancy compared to underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. So that may lead to a greater risk of developing atrial fibrillation over time. We know underrepresented racial and ethnic groups with atrial fibrillation tend to have more paroxysmal forms of AFib. So if you are in AFib here or not in it the next day or two, you may miss that opportunity to capture that. And so you may be under-detecting episodes of that. Finally, I think we should focus on sort of genetic and epigenetic differences that may be driving this paradox. What can we think about that may be protective in African-Americans or may be deleterious in white populations with atrial fibrillation? Greg Marcus has done some work looking at this, specifically from the atherosclerosis and risk community study, as well as the cardiovascular health study, where he looked at Blacks in those two cohorts. And he looked at essentially their quote unquote dose of European ancestry. And so for every 10% dose and increase in European ancestry that a black patient had, their risk of atrial fibrillation went up in a significant fashion. 
There have also been genome-wide association studies looking at various single nucleotide polymorphisms, and they have borne out that, hey, Blacks tend to cluster some SNPs that are more protective compared to whites. Now, all this saying that we may have sort of a myriad of genetic or epigenetic findings, but we have to understand how they interact with other genes, how they interact with the environment, how they interact with social determinants of health. So it's a very sort of complicated explanation as to what is driving the AFib paradox. But three things I like to focus on, or at least think about, are survival bias, ascertainment bias, and potential genetic and epigenetic differences as a function of race and ethnicity. Wow, that was a really eye-opening description. So if I understood correctly, not only do Black patients have a paradoxically lower incidence of AFib than expected, but Black patients on average have worse outcomes associated with atrial fibrillation. And it sounds like there really may be a multifactorial process, or at least hypothesis about that process, with genetic factors, clinical differences, and socioeconomic factors all contributing. What do you see as the biggest barriers to both the diagnosis and the better inclusion in research studies in this underrepresented population? Thank you, Dr. Arbs. It's a great question. If we focus on the research aspect, some of the leading registries that we're all aware of, Pinnacle and even Orbit, looking at atrial fibrillation, they just had very small populations of underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. So we need better enrollment in clinical trials that allow us to sort of tease out these differences, whether it be differences in incidence and prevalence, differences in symptom assessment, differences in obviously outcomes, differences in how various therapies, whether it be antiarrhythmic drugs or catheter ablation, are working at different populations. So we need heterogeneity with respect to our recruitment and how we are bringing people into clinical trials. A lot of these populations that we are talking about are are, are socially and economically marginalized. So we have to think about ways to make clinical trial participation easier for them. Can we use more mobile or telehealth means as a way to recruit and follow patients? Do we have diversity and heterogeneity in terms of our research staff? These are the people contacting the patients. And even it starts at the top from our principal investigators and the trial design and protocol design and even steering committee composition. So we have to think about all these things and specific entities that are going to allow us to be novel and creative about bringing diverse and heterogeneous populations, specifically underrepresented racial and ethnic groups, into clinical trials of atrial fibrillation to begin to understand some of these differences that we continue to see, and better yet, how to really fix them in a way that is meaningful and that's going to bring equitable care to everyone involved. In terms of the patient side, I think we have to do a better job of educating our patients that AFib is a real problem. It is not only epidemic, but potentially can get worse. We need to educate our patients, specifically those that are socially and economically marginalized, the risk of AFib-associated stroke the role of oral anticoagulants, the role of rhythm control strategies as a means of decreasing untoward outcomes. We have to be frank with them and tell them that, hey, racial and ethnic populations with atrial fibrillation tend to do poor, tend to have higher mortality, tend to have worse outcomes. So I think we have to have honest conversations with our patients, have to communicate in a way that they understand the risk and benefits of options, that they understand the potential outcomes, and allow these patients to make an informed decision 
with support from family and other social community members and make decisions that are in the best line of their care with the appropriate health literacy and knowledge to make a good decision. It sounds like there are a lot of unknowns here and a lot of work to be done. We really appreciate all of your work in this space to try and find answers and break down barriers. The inequity in clinical trials is now where inequity ends, unfortunately. How are race and ethnicity associated with the workup for AFib and the use of specialized diagnostic equipment like MCOTs and implantable loop recorders? Dean, thank you for the question. While there's not a lot of data as to say who's getting worked up in different strategies or who's not getting certain strategies, I think we just have to be comprehensive as providers and really have an open mind and a high index of clinical suspicion. And some of this falls on us as providers to really understand some of the racial and ethnic and even gender difference we see in the management of arrhythmias. And specifically, symptoms may be different. We know there are gender sex differences in terms of how people present with atrial fibrillation. There are even racial and ethnic differences in terms of how people present with atrial fibrillation. For example, we know blacks tend to be more symptomatic and have poor quality of life. Coupled with having more paroxysmal forms of atrial fibrillation, you just really have to have a higher index of suspicion, potentially with groups that are of different racial and ethnic makeup or gender. And so, you know, I, I think anecdotally in my practice, I have a low threshold to use things like ambulatory monitoring or even implantable loop recorders if I think that clinical index of suspicion is high. And so I think it's just part of being a well-rounded physician that we have to educate and understand that there are differences in symptom presentation, specifically with atrial fibrillation, across the spectrum of racial, ethnic, and gender and sex populations, and really use the whole armamentarium to really tease out in terms of finding arrhythmias, which ultimately can affect how we treat them, not only with stroke reduction therapies, but rhythm control strategies. And that's a really great segue here. These are just some really excellent points. It really makes me think when I'm in clinic, when I'm seeing a new patient about not only what questions I'm asking, but the way I'm asking those questions. We don't always think about it this way, but every test has a sensitivity and specificity, including the way you ask questions in an HPI or your physical exam. And we really need to be thinking about the difference in symptoms between different populations so that we can maximize our diagnostic accuracy and use all the tools at our disposal. And you were already starting to touch on this, and I think this is a perfect segue, but how does this influence treatment patterns also? I know I've seen some data and some meta-analyses showing that despite higher average CHADS-VAS scores, black patients are less likely than white patients to be prescribed anticoagulation. And additionally, orbit cohort data suggests that black patients are less likely to be prescribed DOAX. So Dr. Jackson, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences in management with different populations, like between non-Hispanic white and non-Hispanic black patients when it comes to rate versus rhythm control, anticoagulation, or procedures to manage AFib. Yes, Colin, great question. And these differences do exist. And you used an example of the ORBID trial, and I was honored to be a part of that study. And I think if we want to think about oral anticoagulation first, since the inception of the direct anticoagulants, I think more people overall are on anticoagulation. But we still have work to do overall, and we know that there are racial and ethnic differences that still exist. 
And for example, in that orbit study, we saw that blacks were significantly less likely to be on direct or anticoagulant therapy. So why is that important? We know that the main benefit of the DOACs is that they decrease the risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And we know from a great study from Shin and colleagues published in Jack in 2007 that Blacks and particularly Hispanics as well as Asians have significantly higher rates and even after adjustment have significantly higher risk for intracranial hemorrhage when on a vitamin K antagonist or anticoagulant such as warfarin. So if we know that DOACs decrease that risk of intracranial hemorrhage and Blacks are less likely to be on them, but have a higher risk of intracranial hemorrhage on warfarin, that remains a problem. The other point I'd like to bring up is that when we look at the trials that demonstrated either non-inferiority or superiority to warfarin with respect to the direct or anticoagulants, we see very low enrollment in Hispanic populations and abysmal enrollment of Black populations in those sentinel trials, such as RELY, such as Rocket AF, such as Aristotle. So what do we really know about the safety and efficacy of some of these medications and underrepresented racial and ethnic groups with atrial fibrillation? If we think about rhythm control, there have been great studies from Prashant Bhavi and others that Blacks less likely to receive rhythm control strategies, whether that be antiarrhythmic drugs, whether that be catheter ablation, more likely to be on rate control, less likely to receive even cardioversion. And that's important because as we continue down this path of research inquiry, looking at racial and ethnic differences, let's focus on the Cabana trial, sub-study published by Dr. Kevin Thomas, looking at the effect of rhythm control and catheter ablation in racial and ethnic groups compared to white patients. And overwhelmingly, Black patients did much better compared to whites with catheter ablation as compared to antiarrhythmic drugs. Now, there's some limitations in that study. There were small numbers of racial and ethnic populations. They were all lumped together for leverage and power. But once again, the hypothesis is there that maybe there's a signal that catheter ablation is preferential and helps in terms of long-term outcomes in Black patients with atrial fibrillation. But certainly more research needs to be done in that specific field. So it's important that we have a racial and ethnic difference, not only or anticoagulation, but pharmacologic rhythm control and procedural rhythm control. But we really need to begin to dive into the why that these racial and ethnic differences continue to persist and really think about strategies to begin to mitigate them, whether that be developing interventions, developing new programs, whether that be educational programs, to really begin to fix and understand the why so that we can fix and change some of these differences we see specifically in anticoagulation and procedural rhythm control. Wow, thank you so much for sharing just a mountain of data to help us understand this problem as well as some ways that it's being addressed. It's pretty clear that race and ethnicity factors impact the epidemiology and treatment of atrial fibrillation, and you all certainly be eagerly watching how that research plays out. Now, there's another area of inequity that we haven't had the chance to address yet. We know that there are also gender-based differences in the evaluation and management of atrial fibrillation. What can you tell us about those? And one thing I'm particularly curious about is whether we know about any underlying differences in the electrical conduction between the hearts of men and women that might affect management decisions. And Dr. Arbs, it's a great question. And while my research is not specifically focused on gender and sex, I think there's some clear points that should be made. If we think about gender slash sex differences, 
We know that women have a lower incidence and prevalence of atrial fibrillation compared to men. But unfortunately, they're more likely to be symptomatic and they have a sort of a different symptom profile that we need to understand and be very cognizant of. Disappointingly, they are more likely to receive rate control strategies as opposed to rhythm control strategies. Additionally, they are less likely to receive stroke reduction therapies that would include aura anticoagulation. That would also include left atrial appendage closure. Their outcomes are worse. Higher risk of stroke, higher risk of heart failure, and higher mortality compared to their male counterparts. So once again, another area that disappointingly we see differences between men and women that needs immediate attention. And I think we have to be very targeted and not only focusing just on race and ethnicity, but really putting the effort and resources and time and research into these gender and sex differences we see because they matter. If we think about overall sort of arrhythmias and how they differ in terms of men and women, I think specifically antiarrhythmic drugs, as an example, specifically class three antiarrhythmic drugs, whether that be a dofetilide, whether that be a sodalol. And I just bring up that example because we know that women compared to men are more likely to have drug-induced torsades, which obviously can be catastrophic. And I think overall, when we think about women and men differences, we have to consider autonomic influences. We know at least in the second to fifth decades of life, women tend to have a faster heart rate. We have to think about also the differences in the effects of sex hormones. We know that estrogen can affect not only the differential expression of various ion channel subunits, but also how those channels function and modulate. We know that females tend to have reduced expression of potassium subunits. We know that estrogen inhibits the herd potassium channel, setting up females for higher rates or incidence or risk of torsades. We know that certain sex hormones can affect action potential duration, but also function in terms of altering calcium metabolism, which may make women more prone to early after depolarizations and triggered activity. So I think on the gender sex difference, we have a long way to go into understanding what is driving those and how to fix those. And I think in terms of management, we also always need to be cognizant of the fact that there are conduction system differences, that autonomic and hormonal influences play a role in that. And we want, once again, to have a high index of clinical acumen when we are treating patients of different genders and sex with respect to rhythm control strategies and various other pharmacologic agents, just to understand the risks and benefits and long-term outcome. So it sounds like not only are there really significant racial and ethnic disparities here, there are also significant gender disparities. And it's really unfortunate to hear. I feel like we're almost kind of in the same situation we were talking about before, where black patients have higher incidence of intracranial hemorrhage, but lower prescription rates of DOACs that have lower bleeding. We're almost kind of in the same bucket here. It sounds like women on average have more side effects from antiarrhythmic drugs, have higher incidence of torsades, but are less likely to be treated with often more effective and better suited strategies for them like ablation and some of these more modern tools that we have at our disposal that wouldn't have these same side effects. We've talked a lot about ethnic disparities and gender disparities when it comes to treatment options, when it comes to diagnosis and prescriptions. 
But what about outcomes? Does everything that we've talked about here lead to a difference in outcomes across different races and genders? Yeah, Colin, it's a great question. And when we talk about race and ethnicity in AFib, we know that underrepresented racial and ethnic groups cluster poor outcomes. They have higher rates and risk of stroke. They have more disabling strokes in terms of ischemic strokes, higher rates of developing heart failure, and higher rates of mortality. You see that along gender sex lines as well. And these things become complicated as to what's driving that. But I think a reasonable person can make the conclusion that Hey, if you reg populations, then that stands for underrepresented racial and ethnic groups are less likely to receive oriented coagulation, or they're more likely to have strokes. The same is true for those of different gender and sexes. If we think about rhythm control, we know that a predominance of sinus rhythm, know this from a firm, leads to a significant decrease in mortality, probably for a myriad of reasons, less heart failure less time in AFib, so less chance to have a stroke, etc. So these differences certainly translate into outcomes in terms of associations. I think the key for us is to understand the why. It's always back to the why. We've done so much research and detecting differences and understanding epidemiology and documenting these things. That's important. That's great. But the field really needs to transition to understand, hey, what are the barriers for women getting oriented coagulation? Or what are the barriers for patients of Hispanic ethnicity for getting catheter ablation? What are those facilitators? And so without a firm and clear understanding as to why these things are happening, we can't really develop programs and interventions to fix this. So really with my research, I'm focused on the mechanism, the genesis, really understanding, for example, in Black patients, what makes it hard for you to receive an oriented coagulant? So we are actively interviewing patients and trying to get a better understanding of those barriers. Is it something along social determinants? Is it something about the patient-provider interaction? Is it something where they are not making decisions in an informed manner based on the principles of shared decision-making? So it's a complicated task, but if we really want to understand these differences and outcomes, you really have to understand what are the barriers toward people getting treatment, the barriers toward people being on the right types of therapy and offer guideline-indicated therapy. And so that's what I'm focused on. I'm trying to move away, really, in my research program for the detection of differences. And that's important. And I recognize that. But I think this long time arc of research that I'm on really needs to be focused on understanding the why, the genesis, the mechanisms, and then developing interventions to fix the problem. Wow. Yes, it sounds like understanding the why is really going to be a key here. So, Dr. Jackson, not only have you done just a phenomenal job of educating us and the cardiology community about the epidemiology and some of the disparities that exist in the diagnosis and treatment of AFib, I know that you've also made a huge impact in this area in your career and will continue to do so, including some of the work that you just highlighted. And I just have to say that I'm lucky enough to have a front row seat to some of the amazing clinical and research work that you and some of our other colleagues here at Duke as well are doing. Oh, yes, for sure. A lot of the research that we cited here today that outlines these significant problems is actually research that you were a part of. But until we identify the problem and know its causes, we cannot find solutions, which is why this research is so important. Now that we have a good grasp on epidemiological and health inequity factors impacting atrial fibrillation care, 
Dr. Jackson, what makes your heart flutter about electrophysiology and studying health inequity? <laughs> well, at the end of it, and Dr. Arbs, it's a great question. And I think for me, it's the chance to provide equitable care. And I want to differentiate that from equal care. I think this idea of equity means that we have to take into account the myriad of differences that we see between people of different races, ethnicities, genders, sexes, regions, whether they be citizens or not, whether they be disabled or not. We have to take into account those differences and make sure we are thinking about those in terms of prescription and, and, and discussion and communication and offering our patients therapy. It's not alone to say we can just offer different people the same therapy because they may have different barriers that may prevent them from uptaking that therapy or utilizing that. So I do like to think of it in terms of equity and not equality. And that's really the driver for me, specifically focused on race and ethnicity, really thinking about the things that make underrepresented racial and ethnic groups different in terms of how they want their AFib care, where they want their AFib care, and how best to get them optimal AFib care. And I think really when I wake up, I'm fascinated and thrilled to do procedures. But I think for me, the research in this area will afford me to leave the best legacy that I can in the field of adult cardiac electrophysiology. So in short, for me, it's all about equity and making sure that broadly across the world of abnormal heart rhythm conditions, that we are putting our best foot forward and providing an equitable future for all. This has just been unbelievable, and I could not think of a better foundation for this series than this conversation and this episode. This has just been a ton of fun. And just to very briefly recap some of the really high-yield points we've talked about, having a high index of suspicion for AFib, making sure that we understand the differences in how patients present, the differences in the symptoms that they have, so we can take those differences into the clinic and make sure we're finding AFib in our patients where it exists, using all of the tools that are at our disposal to do so, and remembering the differences in treatment options and always striving for equitable care. Things like higher incidence of intracranial bleeding in black patients and the need for DOACs and the higher incidence of torsades in women and the lower incidence of ablation in that cohort. And really just always keeping our biases in check and making sure that we are offering the best care we can for our patients. So once again, just thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. And this is a conversation that I will try to learn from and internalize so I can work to address my own implicit biases, as well as those in the system as a whole to improve care for all patients, especially those from disenfranchised and marginalized populations. So everyone, that's all we have for today. But keep that podcast open, everyone, and keep mashing that refresh button. You don't want to miss the next episode in the series where we talk about the diagnosis and detection of AFib. Beep. Beep.